is a magic number Yes it is It's a magic number Somewhere in the ancient mystic trinity You get three As a magic number The past and the present and the future Faith and hope and charity The heart and the brain and the body Give you three As a magic number It takes three legs to make a tripod Or to make a table stand It takes three wheels to make a vehicle Called a tricycle Every triangle has three corners Every triangle has three sides No more, no less You don't have to guess When it's three, you can see it's a magic number A man and a woman had a little baby Yes, they did They had three in the family That's a magic number Okay, how many of you remember? All right, the rest of you have got to just... Go online, go to Amazon, get these. These were public service announcements when I was growing up. The Mystic Trinity, you have three, was on after-school TV. Pretty amazing. So as children, many of us were taught that three is a magic number. Um, for those of us that are my age and maybe just a little bit younger, we had Schoolhouse Rock, which was that was. And that's how we learned, that's how we learned all of our, all of our uh, times tables, and I'm just a bill sitting on Capitol Hill. Do you guys remember? And it's a verb and nouns, and Mr. Predicate is what Mr. Predicate does. It's so cool, especially for you homeschoolers. Man, it'll help. Um, so our modern generation has Jack Johnson, right? So he has a song about the magic of three. But as little girls, we learn that what is true in math is not true on the playground, right? A threesome may begin by calling themselves the three musketeers, all for one, one for all, but very soon, someone gets left out. Somebody gets left behind. Three's a crowd. I remember my mom even growing up saying having three children is difficult. Every time one child was gone, we did better. <laughs> Typically, it was me. When I was gone, everything was better. So fifth grade was when I really stopped being a believer in, three, in threesomes. I remember getting on the bus in fifth grade and somebody passing a note to me and my two little best buddies, the three musketeers that we were, sent me a note saying, I'm out. And they are BFFs and I might as well just go find somebody else. I'm still scarred, by the way. <laughs> so maybe the idea of being all for one and one for all would have a little more staying power if we knew the story behind the motto. Now, though it has been made famous by Andro Damas's 1844 classic novel, The Three Musketeers, um, that is the story, if you don't know, about these three men who stayed loyal through thick and thin in the service of something greater than themselves, king and country. And so the secret to the greatness of their threesome was that it wasn't about the threesome. But interestingly, in, my, in doing some research on this, this is my job is really fun, right? So doing some research on this, I found out that actually Dumas did not coin the term all for one, one for all. It was actually first coined 200 years earlier. True story of Eastern European Christians. A true account of persecuted Christians who upon hearing that they were to be executed came to a unanimous agreement regardless of loss and limb, honor and property, they would stand firm. All for one and one for all. Fascinating. So as little girls on the playground, if we knew where this really came from, 
Maybe we'd have a little more staying power. 1,500 years before the persecuted Eastern European Christians lived are Thessalonians. This first century church planted by Paul is now being urged by Paul to stand firm, all for one and one for all. So as we turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, we find a transition in Paul's letter. So for the last few weeks, we've been, he's been unpacking who they are in Christ, what it means to be a Christian. And Paul has just prayed for the Thessalonians that the Lord would increase in their love for one another and for all to establish their hearts blameless in holiness before God at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Now as we turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul defines this life of love as all for one and... Good, because that's going to be your homework. All right, so turn with me to Thessalonians 4, and let's read together 1 through 12. Finally, brothers... We ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus as you receive from us, please stand, how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has called us for impurity, not for impurity, but for in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. All right, you can have a seat. Thank you, God, for your word. We pray that your spirit, who is alive in us, the gift of the resurrected Jesus, would guide and teach us into all truth for your glory and our good. Amen. So this urging sent to the Thessalonians is for us today. If we are Christians, we too have been called to a life that is to be defined by all for one, and it is a life that is intended to lead to one for all. So let's first look at this life we've been called to, all for one. One Lord. One Lord is what defines us. We have one Lord as a community, and one Lord creates community for us. The Lord Jesus, he came to restore us to our God, to reunite us together to our Father. He came so that we could live distinctively, we've been seeing in, this, in the last couple weeks, distinctively different with those who were once very different than us. You have been called to live distinctly different with sisters within your small group who have lived lives very different than your own, together, forever, ever, living to please God. These Thessalonians were encouraged by Paul for how they were already doing that. And we can look back to 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10 to see that encouragement, how they already had begun to please God. You've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we already see how they're pleasing God, right? They've turned from these other lords. They've turned from all other lords to the living God. Yet, they needed to do so more and more. 
Hmm. Like some of us, right? There are some areas in which there were other lords. Not every area of their life had come under one lord. Not every area of their life were they being united. Jesus gave his life to free us from every other lesser lord. And every other lord is lesser. Every other lord besides the Lord Jesus will be a slave master. Every area that comes under the Lord Jesus becomes freedom. Jesus gave his life to free us from all lesser lords, especially ourselves, because they destroy us and our relationships. We were created to worship, and if we do not worship God in every area of our life, we will worship something else, and whatever we worship besides the Lord will enslave us. God does not need us to please him. We do. Holiness, ladies, if you could, if this has been the greatest thing to put together for me, holiness equals wholeness. You have been called to holiness so that God can put you back together as he intended you to be, to live a life of wholeness and freedom for which you were created. Please, God does not need our pleasing him. We do. Holiness that he calls us to is what makes us whole. Our pleasing God glorifies him because as we are pleasing him, we're put back together. And this shows the world that he is the creator. Because when they see us please God and they see our lives come together in holiness, they realize, oh, there is somebody out there who has created us. There is a manual to life. And there is a God. In any area that is not pleasing to him, you and I are creating decay. A couple weeks ago, we were sitting down to dinner having some yummy tortilla soup, or so it started off being yummy tortilla soup, and my daughter and I both like our sour cream on our tortilla soup, took a big bite, and we, we were eating dirty socks. It was horrible. Something had happened to the sour cream. So then my husband dips into the salsa, and he eats dirty socks. Something had happened to the salsa. And I'm thinking, well, that's weird. I thought I had checked the date. So we, you know, dumped those bowls out, had a little bit of extra, so we had some fresh bowls. I thought, I hope we don't all throw up all night. And the next morning, I opened the refrigerator. The whole thing stinks. Well, now I know what happened. My refrigerator died. Everything is decomposing and falling apart. That is you and I when we don't live in holiness. In any area, you are not pleasing God because he is your creator and because he loves you and all his laws are for your good. In any area in which we are not pleasing God, we are falling apart and we stinketh. (laughs) And we don't taste very good. It is in pleasing God that we become whole, individually and then collectively. And this is why Paul urges more and more. He's asking the Thessalonians, dramatically please God. Now, he is not saying, don't appease God. Don't please God out of fear or to put God in your debt. Don't please God because you're so great and you're such a great Christian. Please God out of trust, out of love, out of belief that he is your creator. Jack Miller, uh, he's a former pastor and missionary who's since gone to be with the Lord. has written several books, but one of the, in one of his books he writes, have you done anything simply today simply because you love Jesus? Have you stopped doing anything today simply because you love Jesus? This is pleasing God. The Thessalonians knew how. Do we? Do you? Do I? I'm glad you asked. One law. 
one Lord and one law. God's commands are what set him apart. And they are given to us to set us apart. The commands that Paul gives the Thessalonians in regard to sexuality and work are all rooted in God's word from Genesis on. In his word, God shows his character in every aspect. And then he asks us to walk in that character. Leviticus 11.44, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Pleasing God, ladies, is nothing less than full obedience to every one of his laws, commands, statutes, the do's, the don'ts, the come-nears, the worship, Paul is urging, instructing, and these words are not Paul's, they're God's. They are not friendly suggestions, they are not good advice or guidelines, they are not to be considered, but commands. I'm working through a book with my daughter right now, Lies Young Women Believe in the Truth That Sets Them Free, and one of the observations that she has of this next generation is that we are very mosaic in our our holiness, even as Christians. We pick and choose what we like, what makes sense to us, what we think. And Paul is not, gonna, not going to apologize. He is saying these are God's commands and every one of them is serious. They are not guidelines. They are not advice. It is not a smorgasbord. Paul urges the pleasing of God through Jesus. And this is hugely significant for us. It brings freedom and hope for each one of us. Because I don't know about you, but I cannot be holy like God. Can you? Through Jesus' life, we see the perfect obedience needed to please God. We see how holy God is in the person of Jesus. Jesus was the Word made flesh. Jesus lived and walked every one of God's commands perfectly, pleasing God unto a cross. And through Jesus' death, we see that God means business when he says, Be holy. He, means so, he so means business that he destroyed his Son for our sake. Through Jesus, we have one who pleased God in our place. And raising him from the dead, God accepted Jesus' obedience for us. Trust in Jesus' sacrifice, trusting in Jesus' pleasing God, is transferred to us now. Now God sees you as he sees his son if you have placed your faith in him. The words he says about Jesus, he says about you. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased past, present, and future, whatever you've done. The good news of Jesus doesn't just save us from the destruction to come, but it also has the power to save us from the wrath we bring upon ourselves, the rotting that we do to ourselves. But now, Romans 6, to 23, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. See, ladies, what is really important for us to understand as contemporary American Christians is that Jesus did not abolish the law. We think because Jesus came and died and God is pleased with us because of him that that means the commands are suggestions. That is not true. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Though obedience to God's law is not what saves us, only grace through faith saves you. Though obedience to God's command does not save you from the wrath to come, 
It does save you from yourself, which is your next worst enemy. Shall I repeat that? Though obedience does not save us, it remains what sets us apart and gives us life. This is why John writes in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Why? Because they lead to life. Are they hard work? Yes. Are they difficult to obey? Of course. But they produce a fruit of righteousness, Hebrews tells us. Disobedience is lack of belief and trust that he is good. And it's missing out how good he is and how worthy he is to be trusted. Until we truly obey him, we can't even see how good his command is. But when we obey those commands by the power of the Holy Spirit, we then find how good his commands are. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way in his book, Cost of Discipleship, Only those who believe obey, and only those who obey believe. You having trouble believing that God is good and true and his commandments are for your good? Start obeying him and watch what happens. God's commands are not external rules to painstakingly conform to, pull up our bootstraps and I got to do this or God's going to zap me. But they are the outworking of a new life within us by the power of his Holy Spirit. A new life that is revolutionary in every way. Paul reminds the Thessalonians that Christianity is a life that is all for one. One Lord, one law. And Paul now turns to the working out of this life together. One for all, and all for one. And his case studies are, two that impact us probably the most, sex and work. So let's jump in. Don't you wish you were me. All right. (laughs) All for one, one love. Living living in a culture that promoted loving self, pleasing self, the Thessalonians were finding it difficult to live out their new identity. All for one and one for all. Boundaries of sexuality. Apparently, at least some, did not see or agree that their new faith meant new boundaries on their sexuality. For many, this was foreign to their previous lives, and it was definitely foreign to their culture. Listen to their culture. Roman philosopher Cicero, at the time of Paul, this was the thinking. Let not pleasure always be forbidden. Let desire and pleasure triumph over reason. Sound familiar? And remember, Rome fell. (laughs) Wives were advised at this time in, in Paul's day to not be angry at their husbands who sought sexual pleasure with other women. That it was to be expected for men, not women, of course. For centuries, marriage, at least for men, has been a me institution, not a we institution. Therefore, so has sexuality. In Paul's day, Demosthenes, a Greek statesman, writes, this was the culture of the day. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our household. Sound a little bit familiar? In our day, this has become now true for women. The addiction to pornography has skyrocketed among women. Women now look at marriage as for me, not for society, not for God's glory, and therefore their sexuality. As modern women, including Christian women, we will indulge our sexual desires outside of our marriage. We may see our husbands as those who provide, 
but we may look at other men to lust after. We do this in the form of the internet, we do this in the form of books, we do this in the form of primetime TV. Lust is a powerful force. I think one of the reasons Paul might have at first here, I don't know, speculation, is that I, what I have noticed in practicality and throughout the scriptures is that for the sake of lust, we will rearrange our theology. We will change what we think about God. Where we once thought we would never do something, we would never commit adultery, we will now say, well, I think God wants me to be happy. Where we once used to say, God wants me to be holy, not happy, now we say, God wants me happy instead of holy. Our lust will change our thinking about God. Or it will reveal our lack of knowledge about God. How we handle our sexual desires defines us as a community, and ladies, it creates community or destroys it. Sexual holiness is sexual wholeness. And that is what is to define us and to develop us as a a sisterhood and as a community of brothers and sisters. See, ladies, our bodies belong to the Lord. We have been bought by the blood of Jesus so that we don't have to be dominated by passions and lusts that destroy us. Immorality, sexual immorality, satisfying our lusts, outside of covenant marriage, as defined by God, immorality is functionally a lack of knowing and believing that God promises to never leave us and to never forsake us. It's filling in a gap for the intimacy and the security that we can find in Christ alone. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6.20 To know God is to have our need for intimacy and security met in him. When this happens, our sexuality then becomes something that honors him, builds security, whether we are single or married, builds a oneness among his people. Sexual honor is what is to define us, and sexual honor is what develops us as a people. We belong to the Lord, not just you and me, We belong to the Lord, and our brothers do as well. Honor was a high value in the Thessalonian culture, and honor was given for recognition, for position, or achievement. What greater honor can any human being have than that he is created in the image of God and that that God gave his son to redeem that person? We honor God by seeing others as not only made in his image, but bought by the precious blood of Jesus. I remember when my husband was working with my son through the whole immorality, pornography, lust, all of that, and there was a huge light bulb moment for, for our whole family, and particularly as, as Jeff was doing research and praying and searching the scriptures to talk to our son. And I'll never forget when he told our son, when you look at another woman to lust after her, you are stealing. You are stealing from God. You are stealing from her dad. You are stealing from her future husband. So those pictures, those images, and when you act out your immorality, you are robbing from somebody else. Now, she may put those pictures out there, but you're perpetuating that industry. You are still stealing To satisfy sexual lust outside of marriage is not a private matter. It has created an entire industry that is enslaving men and women and children. 
We destroy and we steal from others. And we destroy and we steal from our life together. Unless we point fingers, remember Jesus said, anyone who looks after another to lust after them has committed adultery. Our sanctification is not by abstaining from sexual intimacy, though this is really important, but from immorality. Our sanctification is not by abstaining from sexual intimacy, but from immorality. Sexual intimacy within marriage is celebrated. This is the problem with the Christian church. We can go so far over here that all sex is bad. The Bible talks about sexual intimacy in a way that will make you blush for days. Just check out Song of Solomon, and you will even see a woman who's a pursuer and an initiator. Sexual intimacy within marriage is celebrated. Tim Keller in The Meaning of Marriage, I highly recommend. We will not have time to unpack all this. It would be a good book for singles and marrieds. The Bible does not counsel sexual abstinence outside of marriage because it has such a low view of sex, but because it has a lofty one. See, God's word demystifies sex. It's no longer the way to salvation, joy, wisdom, sophistication, everything the world tells you. Within covenant relationship, though, it has the power in it to lead beyond anything you can imagine. A pleasure and an intimacy that is beyond any other relationship or experience. Immorality honors the preciousness of this gift. And so, ladies, what we say, how we talk about it, how we bring people into our own bedrooms, what we view, what we post on social media is serious. We stumble at one another in the things that we do and the things that we say and the way that we behave, and we must be so careful. Wives are rightly angered over the pornography and lusts of their husbands, and they should be. But I've talked to way too many wives who are very angry with their husbands who are watching primetime porn with their husbands. What we get to see on TV, you had to go to the corner store and buy a magazine to view. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. The Lord is the avenger of such things because we are treating as objects those made in his image, those for whom Jesus died, those for whom Jesus is returning. But notice something. Don't walk out on me yet. Paul doesn't apologize. He boldly states God's will for their good, but notice he does not shame the Thessalonians. And this message is not intended to shame anyone. Paul neither shames the Thessalonians or the Colossians for how they once walked. Remember? In these you too once walked when you were living with them. He doesn't shame them, but neither does he give them room for excuses. If you are convicted today, as I have been convicted, it is not to push you away. The Lord is convicting you. He's proving you that, to you that you are his own. And he's convicting you to draw you close. To bring you in. To pursue you. To love you. He knows your story. Your past, your present, and your future. Perfect number three. Better than you know your own story. And he gave his son to bring you into his. 
knowing what you were going to do, knowing what you did do, knowing what you will do. He loves you that much and he pursues you that much and you have hope and you have a place in his family. I love how Gary Thomas in his book, I can't remember which one it talks about, but he talks about guilt being either a car wash or a parking lot. When God convicts us, when there's a sense of guilt, his desire is to move you through the, through the car wash of repentance and restoration and wholeness. Your enemy and your own flesh want you to sit in a parking lot of guilt and feel shame and be defined by your past. That is not what God wants. That's not what Paul is asking of the Thessalonians. No, there is a hope and a place for all who have been immoral. And we all have. Though this was how many of us once walked, all can and should change. We have been given his spirit. The same spirit that gives us the conviction, the guilt that makes us feel badly about what has happened is the spirit that wants to restore us to God and empower our holiness and bring us into honor. Jerry Bridge is not Packer. Sorry about that. In the, wrote The Pursuit of Holiness. He says, too often we say we are defeated by this or that sin. No, we are not defeated. We are simply disobedient. You have the power of the living God to change for hope and a place. And to reject commands regarding immorality is to reject God, and it's to reject the gift and the power of his Holy Spirit promised to us and fulfilled in Jesus. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This promise has been fulfilled in Jesus. To give us a life that is all for one, leading to one for all. In our sexuality and in work. And are you really happy I'm moving on? Boundaries of support. Apparently, at least some did not see or agree that this new life meant new boundaries on the support. On working with their hands. On living one for all. And hang in there with me because I think there's a connection to our sexuality when it comes to work. For the Thessalonians, manual labor was considered menial, degrading. Only the world of thought and thinking and the arts was honored. So, what happened in Thessalonica is unskilled workers attached themselves to the high-standing high people in society. They basically had what was called a patron-client society. So that the high-standing people who, who could make their living on thought and the arts were followed around by entourages of people who had no skill. And they would greet them at their home and say, good morning, good morning, and then they would tell them how great they are all day long. Sound a little familiar? In exchange for food and representation in government. In, ex in exchange for, do for getting the things they needed to do life. Food, rights, and privileges. To them, Paul says, work hard. Use your hands. Using our hands to produce something defines us and develops us as a community. It develops quiet living and minding our own affairs. Remember, this command that Paul is giving, rooted in the Old Testament, was given to the community of Thessalonica. He was not telling the individual Thessalonians, mind your own business. He's telling the Thessalonians, the body of Christ, this new church, mind the kingdom business. Don't mind the business of the world. Don't bring that into the church. Mind the business of the church and take that to the world. 
Paul is addressing two problems happening related to work. First, the Thessalonians were depending upon those hostile to Christianity. A lot of those they were following all around, the patrons, were hostile to Christianity. They were the ones that were persecuting Christianity. So imagine if you're dependent upon someone who hates Christianity. Guess what? You compromise and you bring compromise into the body. Paul does not want the Thessalonians to look to the influential or their political system, ouch, to do life, but to look to community. To keep quiet, to mind our own affairs, is to collectively pull back from what is not our business to pour into what is. To pull back from what is worthless and to put into what is worthwhile. See, a quiet person that Paul is talking about is in contrast to the one who did worthless evil and evil things. Restlessly, this is the type of person that he's talking about, restlessly haunting marketplaces, theaters, law courts, concert halls, where men gathered, we could add Starbucks, where men gathered for unmeasured, endless, absurd, indiscriminate talk that produces only chaos and confusion. Oh my goodness, ladies. Do I have to draw the conclusion, the, the connection to us? How much of our time is spent talking about the culture and looking to the culture to solve our problems and we create chaos and confusion and we stir up within ourselves so much angst. When we become dependent upon our culture to do life, to find life, whether it's politics or Pinterest, we are disquiet and we bring disquiet. Now, there's, now it doesn't mean we disengage from politics or we can't we can't check out what to do from Pinterest. But are we dependent on it? Are we looking to it for our life and our substance? We will create disquiet and we will bring a disquiet. And this is the connection even to sexuality. This idleness, this getting engaged in things that don't belong, don't, don't, are not our business is what leads to some of the lust that we satisfy. The second problem Paul is addressing is that after some of these Thessalonians were severing the relationship with their patron, they knew they couldn't stay affirming this patron and following him around because he was doing things that were contrary to Christians. So they severed that relationship and now they were looking at the body of Christ to meet all their needs. Still not working with their hands. Ladies, we have all been given work to do. Work that is valuable. We are neither to look to the culture nor are we to wrongly depend on each other to do that which God has called us to do. And we do this even in the church. We want people to pray for us and we won't pray for ourselves. We want people to get us fixed and help us be holy when we won't do the very thing God asks us to do with our own hands that will make us holy. We have all been given work to do and that work is valuable to God. It joins him in his work in the world. It brings order out of chaos. Whether our work is healing the sick, counseling a friend, or changing a diaper, which I now have been doing for 27 years, if done to please him, if done to please him, our work becomes an instrument that furthers the affairs of the church. Either by what we contribute materially or because we are changed. And we bring quiet and rest to the body. Through what our hands produce to share, or through who we become as we please him, our spirits are quieted, and we bring a quietness into the community, a restfulness in God. And again, if you're convicted here, that is meant to draw you in. We are all called to hard, often messy work of minding our business, the kingdom business. 
investing in each other, doing work with our hands that builds his kingdom and builds one another up. And ladies, if you get busy doing it, those of us who are restless will find rest. Working is the way we love. Giving to build instead of taking and tearing down. Paul, the Ephesians were dealing with similar issues. Let the thief no longer steal. That's what he calls it. But rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Diogenes, a Greek century uh, Christian writer and apologist, commenting about the sexual ethic and work ethic of the Christians, he says they have a common table, but not a common bed. They were revolutionary. This motion, this early church became revolutionary in the culture in that the culture shared their bed and not their things. Not their money, not their time, not their talents, not their treasures, but they sure shared their sexuality. Christianity is the opposite. We have boundaries on our sexuality, but we have a common table. We share. Unlike the culture then and now, we, are, we hold marriage high, not sharing our beds. And we, we work hard to share with others in need. Shocking commands of revolutionary behavior to remind us that these are not cold and impassionate commands, but they are love. They are the very opposite. And key to this one love, as we wrap up, is the revolutionary brotherly love that we find in the verse between. If we miss verse 9, we're going to all walk out of here defeated. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Do this more and more. Ladies, don't miss this. Please, if you've checked out, check back in. All, one for all love can only happen when God teaches us about his all for one love. One for all love among us can only happen when God has taught us about his all for one love. See, three is a magic number. Somewhere in the ancient mystic trinity, we get three. The living God is not an impassionate, cold, isolated God, and he's not asking us to live as impassionate, cold, isolated people. From all eternity, the living God has lived in relationship. He is a relationship, a community, a family, one love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. From all eternity, the living God has been ultimately pleased pleasing each other, Father, Son, and Spirit, all for one and one for all. And we see this in the verse that she gave you in the study from John. Listen to the Trinity here. It's pleasing love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, how God teaches it to us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, a substitution. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We love because he first loved us. See the Trinity? All at work, pleasing each other. The Father sends the Son. The Son gives us life. The Son raises from the dead. The Son gives us the spirit. This life, this love, this community, this one love among the Trinity they were pleased to come together and make a way to bring us into this love. Eternally one before the creation of the world. The Trinity was united in creating us, 
let us make man in our own image. And the Trinity was united in recreating us, bringing us back when we walked away. Paul Tripp and Timothy Lane and How People Change, change right. the triune God, the Trinity, was torn asunder so that we might be united to God and to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. See, Jesus did please God for us, but not grudgingly. Pleasingly. For the joy set before him. God gave his son not grudgingly, but pleasingly. For the joy of having us be his. The spirit participates. Not grudgingly. But that we might please God. God is eternally alive. He is not isolated. He is all together. Let this blow your mind. And he is at work in you. And he is at work in us. This is the life we have been brought, in, brought into. It was the pleasure of God to bring us in. And if we understand this, it will create a desire to enter into that one love, that one life, through pleasing him. So, now what? What will you do today? Or stop doing today simply because you love Jesus. For some of us, that's just going to begin with repentance, and that pleases God more than anything. Whatever you do to please Jesus, let me tell you this, it'll be all for one, and it'll turn into one for all. Whatever we do to, Je- whatever we do to please Jesus will translate into doing for one another, building community, So what will we do today or stop doing today simply because we love Jesus? Father, we pray for a love among us that is more and more for one another and for all. A love where no one is left out so that all may see they need not be that our dependence upon one another would blow away outsiders, our one love, our one life, and be the entry point to them seeing the one true God. In your name we pray. Amen.